Now, um, those stories that we just heard are all examples of, of ordinary people uh, facing the stuff of life that we all face at different points in our lives, whether that's to do with changes of circumstance, whether it's to do with health, health concerns or job or family, whatever it might be. And I have to say, over these last couple of years, we've all faced some circumstances, haven't we? I mean, life has thrown us quite a few different curveballs um, as, we've, as we've faced these kind of circumstances that we were not expecting and we probably were not very well equipped to deal with. Um, and we'll have all had different battles in this time. Different things will have affected us in different ways. Again, as we heard in those stories, um, we'll all have had different circumstances to work through. And, but what I, I think I can confidently say is the last couple of years have been pretty disorientating for all of us. And actually for some of us, it's, it's not just been disorientating, it's been traumatic. And there's something you're still kind of recovering from, something you're still uh, working through. But what is, what is notable about all those stories uh, that we just heard, and actually so many stories that are represented in this room today that we haven't heard, what's notable about them is that there is a foundation in their lives, and it is an unshakable foundation. There is a hope that they have that has not only sustained them, like got them through by the skin of their teeth, but it's even helped them to thrive in very difficult, very challenging circumstances. And that foundation, that hope, is Jesus. And in particular, the resurrected Jesus. But I wonder what what is the foundation of your life? What is the foundation of your life? Where do you find your hope? Because we all put our hope in something, every human being. We all put our hope in something. If, if your life has meaning, and I think we're aware that it does, I think every human being, again, whether you're a person of faith or not of faith, I think every human being at their core is aware that there is some sense of meaning in life. There's something else, there's something going on. So if your life has meaning, it's because you have a hope in something. You have a hope in something. There is something that you live for. There's something that you're willing to sacrifice for, and that might be your family, your children, a partner. It might be friends. It might be your career. It might be a football team, sports team. I learn this lesson every year. Something that's beyond yourself that you live for, something where you find meaning in life. That's where your hope is. And they're all good things, by the way. All of those things I just said, they're all good things to have in our lives. Family, relationships, uh, career, um, friends. They're all, they're all good things. They're all blessings in our lives. But none of them are good foundations for our life because they can all become very uncertain. And, and surely that is something the last couple of years have taught us, that you know, certain foundations we had in our lives were suddenly shaken and things that we always took for granted suddenly became very uncertain. Things were just turned up on their head. And as I said, I don't think we quite knew how to deal with it. Because the reality is, and I think we all know this, the reality is that relationships can come to an end for various reasons. And so if we've put all our hope, if we've built a foundation on a what do we do then? It's not a good foundation. It's an uncertain foundation. People close to us can die. People close to us can let us down. Jobs, careers can be lost and ultimately will be. Nobody's going to have the same career forever. You know, it's like all of these things will ultimately be lost. They're not good foundations. They're all good things. They're good things to be enjoyed and fought for while we have them. And they're things that are full of meaning for us, but they're not good foundations. They're not where we can our ultimate hope. 
But what we celebrate at Easter and the thread that we heard running through all those stories is a different kind of hope. It's a foundation that really just now, but for eternity. It can take the weight of your life because it's a hope that doesn't fade. It's a hope that doesn't die. It's a hope that doesn't let you down. It's a hope that isn't bound up in changeable and uncertain circumstances, but it's bound up in an unchangeable event that has already happened. The resurrection of Jesus. A historical event that has eternal consequences that transforms the way that we can live our lives now in this present world, even with all the troubles and all the challenges that we face. And so we're going to read Luke's account of the resurrection of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, we're in Luke chapter 24. Uh, It will also come up on the screen behind me. So this is what Luke says about the resurrection. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Well, we know what happened, don't we? We know the end of the story. Jesus had risen from the dead, and the rest of the Gospel of Luke then goes on and outlines some of the appearances that the resurrected Jesus made to various people, and then there are other accounts of his appearances in the other Gospels as well, but Jesus had risen from the dead. But I want to focus in on that question that the two angels asked the women at the tomb. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? It's a rhetorical question. You know, they're not expecting the women to answer them. Uh, There's maybe even a sense of exasperation about it. Like, why? Why are you looking here for Jesus? He's not here. He's risen. Surely you know this. Jesus has risen. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? But it's a question, really, that communicates to this group of Jesus' followers that they've got They've got it very wrong. They fundamentally misunderstood the situation because they are treating Jesus as if he's still dead. And they're living their lives as if Jesus were still dead. Now, they would very soon learn the truth and they would encounter for themselves the risen Jesus, the resurrected, physically resurrected Jesus. They'd encounter him for themselves and that would completely change the course of their lives uh, forever. But how about you? How about you? Do you live your life as if Jesus is still dead, or have you encountered the risen Jesus? Are you still looking for the living among the dead? Now, let me just, uh, I'm making an assumption here. Um, I'm coming from a starting point, an assumption uh, that everybody here, whether you're somebody of faith or not of faith, and the same for you online, 
uh, I'm making the assumption that everybody here and everybody watching accepts that Jesus was a real historical person who, who did amazing things, who taught amazing things, who was crucified at the hands of the Romans, at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and was a dead body. His dead body was put in a tomb. I'm assuming that everybody accepts that simply because you cannot argue with any historical credibility that he wasn't. It, you just can't. Okay, so that's the starting point that I'm coming from. If you come from a different starting point, you're going to have to go and do some reading, okay? But, but I'm starting from that point, that acceptance. The question really is, it's not was Jesus a real person or a myth. No, no, no. The question is, did he rise from the dead? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And if he did, what difference does that make to you today? So as these women came to the tomb, I think there were a couple of mistakes that they were making in their understanding, which are the same mistakes that people make today. So as they approached the tomb, the first mistake they made is that they had completely missed the possibility or the physical reality of the resurrection. They'd missed the reality of the resurrection. They came to the tomb believing that there would still be a body in it. They were not expecting this to happen. They were not expecting the miracle of the resurrection. So in essence, for them, at this point in the story, Jesus is just like the founder of any other religion. He's dead. He's dead. They have memories of him. They have stories about him, but that's about all. But you know, this is what a lot of people think today. Those who don't just discount out of hand that Jesus was a real person. But a lot of people might say something like this. You know, I, I do respect Jesus, in fact, I was having a conversation with our uh, Muslim taxi driver on the way to the airport a couple of weeks ago. He was saying exactly this, I respect Jesus. We Muslims, we respect Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I know, I get that. But I respect Jesus as a great figure, a historical figure, his wise teachings. He, you know, central to one of the world's major religions. Clearly, he was a good man. He was a prophet. But you're not seriously asking me to believe in this primitive, ridiculous idea of resurrection. Surely not. I mean, that is ludicrous. And we can very easily get into a bit of chronological snobbery here. In other words, we can think that people back then were a bit stupid. You know, people back then, well, they might have been gullible enough to believe a fairy tale like this, that somebody would rise from the dead. But not today, because we're too sophisticated. We are, we're enlightened. We have science. Listen, they may not have been as advanced scientifically or technologically as we are today, but they did know enough to know. Dead people don't come back to life. Right? I'm pretty confident of that. Um, it's always been difficult to believe in resurrection. <laughs> it's always been difficult to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's, it's there in the story. They weren't expecting it. The women are not expecting it. The other disciples, they think they're talking nonsense when they start talking about these things. Even though, actually, Jesus had told them pretty plainly what was going to happen to him. He had said it very plainly, but it had just kind of completely gone over their heads. They just hadn't been able to understand it or accept it because it was so outside of their, of their frame of reference. It's not something that was in their thinking or something they expected. A few years later, the Apostle Paul was speaking in Athens, and he was speaking at the Areopagus in Athens, and there's a whole group of people around him. They're listening to these new ideas about this guy called Jesus, and they're listening intently because they like these kind of discussions. But then when Paul gets to the bit about the resurrection, a lot of them just go. And you know, this guy's talking nonsense. What is he? A resurrection? What, he's talking absolute nonsense. The point is, the idea of resurrection was every bit as ridiculous then as it is now. People knew dead people do not come back to life. And yet, the claim is that it happened. The claim is that it happened. And here's the thing. Historically speaking, the resurrection, as unlikely as it might seem to our modern thinking, 
The resurrection really is the only plausible explanation for the facts and the evidence that we have. There have been other explanations, other theories put forward, but they all get shot down. They don't stack up. The resurrection is the only plausible explanation for the evidence we have. And I don't have time to unpack that too much, but very briefly, the the main threads of the the argument. First is that Jesus' tomb was empty. Right? The tomb that Jesus' dead body was put in, it was empty. That is a pretty undeniable historical fact. It would be too easy to disprove if it wasn't true. Because all you have to do is say, well, no, look, it's not. His tomb is not empty. That didn't happen. Jesus' tomb was empty. Second thing is that there were hundreds of eyewitnesses claiming to see the risen Jesus. Now, again, this would have been really easy at the time to discredit the whole story if you couldn't find these eyewitnesses. Right? So if, if, if somebody said to you, um, 40 years ago in High Wycombe, 40 years, because the Gospel of Luke was written down about 40, maybe 40, 45 years after. There are other writings which are earlier than that which claim the resurrection, but let, let's take the figure of 40 years. Right? So somebody says to you, 40 years ago in High Wycombe, Elvis Presley appeared. Right? Now that would be pretty remarkable because Elvis was dead 40 years ago. Uh, he also didn't live in High Wycombe. So 40 years ago in Hyacom, Elvis Presley appeared to that specific person, named person, that person, because you notice Luke names people, he gives evidence. Luke Luke is a historian, he's researched his gospel and he's writing down as a historian, right? So he names people. In other words, go and talk to these people. So Elvis Presley appeared 40 years ago in High Wycombe. He appeared to this specific person, that specific person, that person, and also to hundreds of people all at the same time. Well, you would be able to go and check that story out pretty easily because... Some of those eyewitnesses would still be around 40 years later. They would still be alive. Or there would certainly be people who, who knew them, who they had passed the story on to, because this would have been a pretty major event. And if there were hundreds of people who were supposed to have witnessed this, you would have been able to find somebody. If you couldn't find anybody who could verify this story about Elvis Presley, well, that story is going to disappear pretty quickly. It's not going to gain any traction. People are just going to say, well, it's just rubbish that somebody's making up a fantasy. But there were hundreds of eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. And at the time the Gospels were written, and as I said, Paul's letters were written earlier than this, and they all claimed the resurrection, they all claimed these many eyewitnesses that you could go and ask. The fact is, at the time that this was written, you could have gone and checked this out. And you could have disproved it, you could have discredited it if it wasn't true. But what actually happened is the reverse. Christianity spread very, very fast across the world. And Christianity spread very fast, even in the midst of the most terrible persecution, because many of the apostles and disciples of Jesus went to their death in the most gruesome ways for claiming and refusing to renounce the resurrection of Jesus. You don't do that if you know that what you're claiming is a lie, if you you know that this is something we've all made up. You just don't do that. So there's lots that's been written about this by various historians, Christian historians, but also secular historians. The long and short of it is... The resurrection of Jesus is the only plausible explanation of the facts and the evidence that we have. And so, historically speaking, we've got to accept it's true, even if it seems far-fetched to you. You've got to accept that it's true, because it's where the evidence overwhelmingly points. And this is really crucial, this is really important, this question, did Jesus rise from the dead? It's so important. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, speaking to Christians, writing to Christians, he says... If Christ has not been raised, well, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. You know, you're not forgiven anything. It's just utterly futile. And then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, well, they're lost. 
They're not in eternal life in heaven. They're just buried in the ground. There's nothing for them if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, he's saying if there is no resurrection, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, well, Christians, you are wasting your time. You are utterly, your faith is completely futile, pointless, and we are to be pitied more than all people. If there's no resurrection, Christians just worship a corpse whose death achieved precisely nothing. Everything hinges on the resurrection. Everything hinges on this. If there's no resurrection, Christians, you know, don't bother trying to live a godly life or just go and live your life however you want. Do whatever you want. What's the point in, in, in trying to live for somebody else? Just live for yourself. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, actually what, it's really important because it means it lends a certain credibility. It validates all his other claims as well. Because if somebody says, I'm going to die, and then three days later I'm going to be raised to life, and that's what happens, I think you listen to that person. That gives him a certain amount of credibility. <laughs> you trust that person. And you trust the other things that he said as well. And it was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. And he said, no one comes to the Father. No one comes to God apart from through me. So you can't treat him like the founder of any other religion, actually. He's pretty exclusive in that claim. The resurrection, everything hinges on the resurrection. Don't make the mistake of treating Jesus as though he were dead. As if he's like the founder of any other religion, Because that flies in the face of all the evidence. Jesus was raised from the dead. Praise God. Praise God. And so Jesus' followers, they had missed that. They had missed the physical reality of the resurrection. Then the second mistake, the second thing they missed was the meaning of the resurrection. The meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the angels at the tomb... They, they asked the women these, this, this question, you know, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. And then they said to them this, they said, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, this is what Jesus said to you. He said, the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. He must be, to be crucified and then on the third day be raised again. Jesus, they're saying to them, remember, Jesus told you that he must die, that this had to happen. Clearly the, the women knew he had died, and they, they probably had a vague sense of that he had done it in some way for them and out of love for them without really understanding the full, the full picture. They had understood that he had died, but they hadn't understood that he had to die, that Jesus absolutely had to die. And so they're at the tomb. They're seeking to honor uh, Jesus' memory, and I'm sure they're seeking to live in the way that he had taught them as well, the sacrificial kind of lifestyle that Jesus had taught them to live. And so their understanding at this point in the story, is that Jesus primarily had lived his life as an example for them to follow. That's what Jesus' life was about. And it's that example that they needed rather than needing his death and resurrection. And again, just puts Jesus in the same category as any other religious figure, any other founder of any religion who left a body of teaching, who left an example behind, but are dead. And the goal of that religion is is for the followers to live like that person, to live for that person, following their example, following their teaching, trying to live the best life you can in the hope that if you live a good enough life, you get yourself to heaven. You win salvation. That's religion. And that sounds okay until you realize it's utterly impossible. Humanly speaking, that is utterly impossible. It is a standard we cannot possibly live up to. You know... 
We can try to live for Jesus. We can try to live for Jesus. But on its own, that is not enough. As much as these women at the tomb and Jesus' other followers at the time, as much as they might have tried, all of their serving, all of their good works, all of their sacrifice would never, ever be enough to save them because they're still lost. They're still lost. And they're completely lost because the very real power of sin was still at work in their lives. And I don't know what your understanding of sin is But I can tell you it's a lot more than somebody doing something a bit bad. You know, it's a lot more than that. Sin is more like a disease that has infected and corrupted every human heart and indeed the whole of creation. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned, every human being. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot possibly, we cannot live up to his standard. Here's how one writer, I hope this doesn't shock you too much, but one writer called Francis Spufford defines sin in this way. He says, sin is the human propensity to F things up. I chose not to say the word. I was thinking about maybe doing a bit of audience participation, fill in the gaps, but we won't do that. I hope that's not too shocking for you. I just think it's a really helpful quote because actually it captures something about sin that we don't often think about. Sin is the human propensity to F things up. And I think we can all identify with that. That every human being, every one of us, all of us, have a propensity within us to break things, to mess stuff up, to, to break relationships that are very dear to us. We have that propensity to do it. To, to, to break promises that we make to other people, to mess up our own sense of well-being, to mess up the well-being of others. We, we have that propensity, and it's driven by selfishness. It's when we're being selfish. It's when we're self-absorbed. It's driven by pride, and that is what sin is. It's pride. It's pride. It's going our way and not God's way. I'm going to do things my way. Don't you dare tell me how to live my life. And it separates us from God. That sin separates us from God. It separates us from the kind of life we were meant to live that we're all searching for. And it separates us from the kind of world that we were meant to live in. So sin is this huge barrier between the human race and God. And it leaves us utterly adrift. It leaves us rudderless. It leaves us without an anchor. Just desperately searching for meaning. In life, the meaning that can actually only be found in God, we're desperately searching everywhere for it. I said before, we all have this intuitive sense that there is meaning in life, that we're part of a bigger story, that there's, we're made for a different kind of world. We have that sense of meaning in life, but we go looking for that meaning in all the wrong places, desperately grasping at things, trying to find happiness, trying to find an anchor, trying to find meaning in life, like people stumbling around in the darkness, desperately searching for something to hold on to, something which feels like the answer. And we often come back to that thought, that religious thought of, look, if I can just live a good enough life, if I can live well, it will be okay. I will be okay. But our, the reality is different. The reality is our own goodness, our own righteousness will never be enough. It's hopeless without Jesus. Our righteousness will never be enough. But this is why Jesus had to die and be raised to life, to conquer the power of sin, to conquer the power of death, because we are incapable of conquering it ourselves. So he died not as an example for us, but as a sacrifice 
He died as our substitute, as our saviour, in our place. He lived the kind of life that we should have lived, the kind of sinless life that we were created for, the kind of connection with the Father that we were created for. He lived the kind of life we should have lived, and he died the kind of death we should have died on our behalf. So 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, the sinless one, he made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Not, not just that he kind of carried the sin, in some way he became sin, he became abhorrent. He became the most beautiful, majestic, pure, perfect being in the universe, became repulsive and abhorrent because of our sin. So that in him, and only in him, we we might become the righteousness of God. Not, 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 just kind of, not just kind of have a ticket that gets us, but we become, I mean, this is mind-blowing. We become the righteousness of God. It's, an, it's a divine exchange, which is utterly undeserved for us, and yet it's incredible for us. We exchange our sinful record for his righteousness. He died a criminal's death that he had done nothing to deserve so that we could go free and not receive what we deserve. But instead, we get reconciled to him for eternity in a real living relationship with a real living person because Jesus is alive today. It means that when the judgment of God comes, as it will, a day of judgment will come, but God will judge all of us it means that I get to stand, because I'm in Christ, I get to stand on Jesus' record and not my own. I will be judged according to his righteousness and not my own, because my own only deserves condemnation. But his is perfect, and he's given it to me. It's just the grace of God. It's the grace of God, and that is the unshakable foundation upon which I stand. That is the ultimate hope that I have that changes how I live my life now because I want to follow someone who's going to come and do that for me. I, I love this guy. I want to follow him. Why wouldn't I want to follow somebody who, who, who's willing to sacrifice for me in that way? That's the foundation that I shake on, not because there's anything good about me, but because everything, everything is good about him and I believe and I trust in the power of his death and his resurrection. And I've submitted my life to him. Why would I want to do anything else? What we celebrate at Easter is that Jesus has done everything that is needed to smash that barrier of sin and to make a way for us to receive the forgiveness that we need for our sin and to receive new life. And to receive power for living this life. And to find that meaning in life that we're all so desperately scrabbling around, searching for, trying to grasp hold of. He gives us that significance that we're searching for. He gives us the security that we so desperately need. The acceptance that we're all looking for that can only come through being reconciled to God for eternity. That's the foundation that I stand on and that I live my life from. My question for you is, do you know it? Do you know it? Do you know, have you grasped just how much you mean to Jesus? How much you mean to God that he would go to those lengths for the sake of you. He would go to those lengths to rescue you. What foundation are you standing on? Is it the unshakable foundation of the death and resurrection of Jesus for you? 
Or are you standing on foundations that are good things in themselves, but they will ultimately crumble? They will ultimately let you down. So how do you set your feet on that foundation that I've been talking about? How do you set your feet on that unshakable foundation? Well, Romans 10.9 says this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. And so that's the question, or a couple of questions really, for anybody here today or anybody watching online at the moment who doesn't currently have that relationship with Jesus that I've been talking about. First question is, do you believe that he was raised from the dead? Now, I, I've told you already, I think it's pretty undeniable, but it's not for me to convince you. You have to know it for yourself. Do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? That's a crucial question. It's a question that changes everything. Your answer to that changes everything. And if you do, if you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, the second question is, are you ready to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord? Now, let me just say, that's a big thing to say. Three small words, but with eternal consequence. Jesus is Lord. To say Jesus is Lord means acknowledging your sin. It means acknowledging that up to now, you've lived life for yourself. But now you're saying, actually, I want to follow you. I want to live for you, Jesus. That's what it means to say, Jesus, Lord. I want to follow you wherever you lead me. I want to put my trust in you. I want to put all my hope in you and follow your purpose for my life, wherever it may lead me. I want to receive that new life that you offer. I want to receive the power that you give us for living. And I want my feet to be set upon your unshakable foundation. That is what is meant by saying Jesus is Lord. It's saying, I want you, Jesus, to be in charge of my life. You call the shots. You're in control. I submit myself completely to you. It's a big thing. It's not to be done lightly. To say Jesus is Lord and mean it, that is not to be done lightly. But for some of you, it might be that right now, today, you know God is calling your name. You know God is calling your name. And so what I want to do is I want to give you an opportunity to respond to him. Okay? It's not an accident that you're here today. So I'm going to ask the band if you want to come back up now. And, um, and why don't we all stand together? Stretch our legs. And so this is, this is really about giving you a tangible opportunity, a tangible moment in time where if you choose to respond to Jesus, you can say that is the moment when God came into my life. That is the moment where everything changed. And I have to tell you, this is an invitation. It is not a compulsion. It's an invitation. And if nobody in this room and nobody online wants to respond to that invitation, that's fine with me. I'm not about trying to coerce, manipulate, I only want you to respond for the right reasons. And that reason is that you know that God is calling you. You know Jesus died for you. You know he was raised from the dead. And you know it's the moment where you have just declared Jesus is Lord. And he's my Lord. That's the reason to respond. And by the way, I think you know if he's calling you. You know, because your heart is beating a bit faster. It's a bit heavier. There's something going on. You'll probably be able to feel something physically going on. And if that is you, what I'd say is just don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. It's the best thing you could ever do is to respond to Jesus when he calls your name. So let's all close our eyes. Reason for that, I just want to reassure everybody here that if you respond to Jesus in this way, I'm not going to do anything to embarrass you. 
I'm not going to do anything to expose you. I'm not going to call you to, to parade yourself in front of everybody. We've got our eyes closed. This is between you and God, because that's the relationship which is at stake here. It's the relationship between you and God that is damaged, but can be mended and made whole. So as we've just got our eyes closed, and actually I think for some people in here, maybe some watching online as well, it's not that you're new to the Christian faith, but there is a sense of a new beginning today. There's a sense of a new beginning, that there's been a drift which has happened, and you don't recognize this relationship with a living person. So maybe for you it's a time for a new beginning. So if you know that this is a moment for you to respond to Jesus, we've all got our eyes closed. All I'm going to ask you to do, if you want to submit your life to him, is just to put your hand up in the air. Just raise a hand very clearly. Don't hesitate. Do it very clearly. Thank you. Well done. This is between you and God. You don't need to worry about other people looking and... I'm just going to wait a few moments here because I know this is a big deal. I know there is a battle that happens over this. I've been where you are. I've been in that moment where somebody's calling you to respond, somebody's calling you to raise your hand or do something physical, and and it's a battle. It's a real battle. So I'm just going to wait a few more moments. If you know that this is a moment for you to respond to Jesus, just put your hand up in the air, along with the others who already have. Just put your hand up in the air, very clearly, as a sign to him. This is between you and God. Well done. sees you so just put your hands down and I'm going to pray I'm going to pray a prayer and if you put your hand up or even if you didn't put your hand up but you know you wanted to you know that there was a moment there well the moment's still here God God is a God of many many chances as I've as I've discovered but if you put your hand up or you're responding to Jesus in that way just I'm going to pray but just pray this from your own heart just follow me as I pray and make this your prayer to God okay so let me pray dear God uh, I just want to thank you so much for for the lengths that you went to to rescue me thank you for loving me with an indescribable love and today Lord I want to open up my life to you I want to open myself up to Jesus Christ who died on a cross for me and who rose again so I could have a sure and certain hope and foundation in my life, so my sins could be forgiven. I choose to follow you, Jesus, for the rest of my days. I choose to follow you. And I want to know your resurrection power in my life. I want to stop trusting in my own power, my own strength, and trust completely in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you have paid my debt. You have paid the debt of my sin in full. Nothing left to pay. You've completely dealt with it. Thank you for your forgiveness. And so I ask you to come into my life and to be the Lord of my life and to give me the strength to lead the kind of life that you call me to lead. I give myself to you today, Jesus. I trust you. I give you everything. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. And let's just have a moment now.